You're listening to the Auxiliary Gate Podcast, Kentucky's weekly horse racing discussion. And now, here are your hosts, Alan Schneider, Brandon Jaggers, and me, C.C. Broadus. Consider taking a, a flyer on the five, threat level midnight. Threat level midnight's going to go on to win by just about six in the end. So I would definitely have to have the humongous one. The humongous one will get Brooksy off the duck, wins by two and a half. Clear four action, number seven. You got John Court. To me, John Court wins one race. One night, every race day, it seems like. Clear for action, would never give up. One by just about a neck. Uh, I'm on a single Crockett's Bluff there on my skinny ticket. Wow. And Crockett's Bluff is going to the winner's circle. He won it by just about a length from McGahee. Okay, this is episode 31 of the Auxiliary Gate podcast, and you are listening to a bunch of turkeys, because that is exactly what we are after our performance last Wednesday during the Pick 5 carryover at Turfway Park. I am CC Broadus. I'm joined by Alan Schneider. and Brandon Jaggers. And, and Brandon Jaggers will join us shortly, and... We gave out the first four winners. Uh, one of us, at least one of us, did on every race. But Alan, we none of us connected on what seemingly was an easy pick five. It really was. Uh, it really was fairly easy. You know, sometimes it's not about just picking words. How you put that thing together and didn't quite connect the dots in the proper fashion. As many a horse player knows that feeling. So, well, let's pay be, six six. Let's say pay three thousand three thousand dollars for a fifty cent mm-hmm. ticket. Okay. So. And Not we, bad. And as as they say, we were all over it. But yeah. the, to be honest, though, I mean, the, the, the meat has been fairly formful. Uh, outside, I agree. You know, and there's been a few outliers. Uh, and, you know, when you're playing verticals, or excuse me, when you're playing horizontals, the outliers, uh, sometimes they come in the wrong spots. So that's, that's not me. I have a few pick fours and pick fives. But uh, I, I think for the most part, it's been a, been a fun meet. I, you know, I me. Mean, if you if you follow me on Twitter, I can't say enough about it. I think the meet's been fantastic. Uh, I'm a big fan. I've always been a, I've always been more of a fan of Turfway than a lot of people have been. Probably even more so this meet. I think they've done a great job with the new surface. I like the Jockey Colony. Uh, the races are full. There's deep fields, but they're but they're not unhappable. Again, as you said there's going to be outliers. There's always going to be a few outliers, and um, I'm I I can't wait for next week's racing to start. Yeah, it's absolutely been absolutely been fun. So uh, let's switch gears though, and we want to we're going to rewind the clock about a hundred years ago. This is the 100 year anniversary of the match race between Man of War and Sir Barton, and uh, Jennifer Kelly, who's an author of uh, the book uh, about Sir Barton, uh, making of the Triple Crown, is going to join us here in a few minutes. Uh, Alan, you were there for the uh, the match race between Man of War and Sir Barton. Do you have any uh, recollections of that? Oh, you know, the gray in my beard and uh, on my head would probably indicate to people that I may have been there back then, <laughs> but I'm not quite that old. I'm only about, I'm only about the halfway point of that hundred of that hundred year uh, marker. <laughs> I'm Josh. And, you know, well, we're, we're excited to have Jennifer on and and can't wait to can't wait to talk to her about about her book and uh, and and. Uh, new projects that she may have coming up. So uh, without further ado, here is our interview with Jennifer Kelly. Okay, our special guest tonight is a native of Fultondale, Alabama. She's a writer that authored her first book at the age of 12. 
As a horse racing fan, she decided to undertake the project of authoring a book about racing's first Triple Crown winner, Sir Barton. The, resor- the results of her six years' worth of effort into this project was ultimately titled Sir Barton and the Making of the Triple Crown. And now Sir Barton's place in the annals of horse racing history is forever preserved. All thanks to our guest tonight, Jennifer Kelly. Jennifer, welcome to the Auxiliary Gate. Thank you, guys. I'm so excited to be with you all tonight. So I was doing some research on you earlier today, and I found out that you're a fan. You were a fan of winning colors back in the day. She won the 1988 Derby. Is that true? Yes. Um, When I was in fifth grade, so this is 1987, my uh, teacher, Miss Scott, read The Black Stallion to my class. And the following year was the first derby I ever watched on television. So that would be 1988 winning colors. So that's how I became a fan of her. Well, you picked a good year to follow horse racing. To me, yeah. that's the golden era of modern mm-hmm. horse racing. You with yeah. 87 Agreed. through 89 with uh, Ali Sheba and winning colors, personal ensign, yes. uh, Sunday silence, easy goer. That that was a lot of excitement. Uh, so that's that you, you came along right right about the same time I did on uh, on picking up on horse racing. So uh, what where did the inspiration come from to write a book about Sir Barton? Well, it's. It kind of has two threads to the story. So the first one was, of course, I've been a horse racing fan since I was a kid. And the thing that I really cut my teeth on was the Triple Crown. So as a fan, that's what I knew best. And, you know, so when it came to reading material, I was always seeking out stories about Triple Crown winners and the like. And then at the same time, I was... In my late 30s, and I was thinking about changing careers, my kids were getting older, and I really needed something that was more flexible than what I was doing at the time, which was teaching college. So my husband and I were talking about what would we be doing if we weren't doing what we were doing at that moment. (laughs) And I was like, well, if I wasn't teaching, I would be doing this. And I told him several ideas for, you know, books I'd like to work on, and this was one of them. And he said, well, you should see if someone's done that yet, because I know you'd be, you know, a really good fit for this. And so over the next, you know, few days, I started researching whether or not anyone had written a book on Sir Barton, because I knew the 100th anniversary was coming up. And this is 2013, so it was about six years out. And I was really surprised to discover no one else had written a book on him, because you can find books on Secretariat and affirmed in Alidar and, you know, Seattle Slew and stuff like that, but I really couldn't find one on him. And I thought, well, I've got this background in academics and research. I, I should give this a try. And so I undertook the, <laughs> the task of, uh, of writing the story of Sir Barton just because I felt like it was, nece- it was time for someone to do it before all the specifics were going to be lost to, you know, the passage of time. So, so I don't know a whole... I don't know a whole lot about, you know, the writing industry, the book book industry, publishing and whatnot. Is that was that a big deal to get that published, to, to get your writing published, or is, is that not that big a deal, or how did that go? Well, that was that was a challenge because um, as a write, like as someone who was an academic, when I thought of publishing, I thought mostly of academics and so textbooks and the and the like. And I knew how it worked when you wrote fiction, like you have to finish the book first. 
and then you seek out a publisher. So I was taking it from that uh, standpoint where I was trying to finish the book first and then look for a publisher. And what I discovered in the process was that actually for nonfiction, you can write a proposal and pitch a book before you've actually started writing it and then find a publisher that way. So I queried about two dozen agents and had about a half dozen say, I really like the idea for this project, but we don't know how to sell it. So thanks, but no thanks. And I was kind of like, okay, well, maybe I, I should self-publish this instead. But when you self-publish, you spend a lot of your own money on the front end. And I just wasn't comfortable spending that much money. And so what happened was I kept trying to put out feelers to find people to ask, like, who do you think would be interested in this? But I, I, basically, it was an accident that I found my publisher in the first place. Because I kept trying to query um, people that were connected to other publishers and coming up dry. And then I put it out on Twitter one day, like, I'll find a home for this book at some point. And that's when Jamie Nicholson, who write, who has written books for the University Press of Kentucky, actually found me. And then the same week, um, Ed Bowen, who has written so many books on horse racing and was, you know, involved like editor of the Blood Horse for so many years. Ed actually uh, contacted me as well because I had been working with him on trying to get some source material. And they both suggested, why don't you try the University Press of Kentucky? And so I sent in the book proposal. So it was, it was one of those where it was like just trying to find the right home. And for horse racing books, that's really challenging because it's very niche. And I just hadn't happened upon the right niche yet. But I got lucky <laughs> that I found them when I did because then the timing worked out. So this book was six years in the making. What type of research uh, did you do to, to on this project? Did you, did you have to travel to Kentucky or did you do most of it online or how did that go? Well, it was a mixture of both. I, I started um, online mostly through a lot, there's some digital archives like newspapers.com. And then the University of Kentucky has done a preservation project on the daily racing form. So you can find the first 30 years, give or take, of the daily racing form online. And it's searchable, which is wonderful. And that was the early part. And then as I got deeper into the research, I traveled to the Keeneland Library to uh, do a lot of research for the stuff that I couldn't find digitally. And then um, I also, like, you know, I went through Ancestry.com to track down, you know, family members. I did a lot of Google searches or a lot of letters or a lot of emails. But there was, it's a mixture. It just depends on what you're looking for specifically. <laughs> so I did a lot, I did the vast majority of it from here in Alabama, but I, I have made many trips to Kentucky. And thankfully I have family in the area that let me crash in their guest bedroom <laughs> so I could do it. That's cool. Uh, I've not bought not bought the book yet. I'm going to. I, I can't wait to read this. I, it, I read a, a, a couple of excerpts from the book. And I'm, I'm really fascinated by it. And I read the excer excerpt about the uh, the match race between mm -hmm. uh, Man of War and Sir Barton. I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, you know, match races were a part of uh, the fabric of horse racing for many, many years, up until, mm -hmm. you know, 
uh, the the big match between Ruffian and Foolish Pleasure that ultimately led to the demise of Ruffian. But uh, I did not realize that uh, this was a big deal. The the match between Sir Barton and Man of War it, it was that something that was clamored for by by the owners or or something that the media called for or the fans or how did how did the uh, match come about? Well, it it started really before Sir Barton was just kind of like first it was Man of War like as Man of War continued to beat all the horses in his division people you know fans and turf riders alike were clamoring for Man of War to face older horses because they felt like that was the ultimate test of his abilities and Samuel Riddle and Commander, Commander Ross were kind of carried along with the fervor just reluctantly really um with Samuel Riddle he just really didn't want to find out if his horse was fallible and then with Commander Ross he was realistic about his chances <laughs> against Man of War because they had watched Man of War run in 1919 at Saratoga and then in 1920 as a three-year-old at Saratoga as well so they were familiar with what they were up against so it really started with you know, fans and media at the same time kind of building up this, you know, fervor for we this needs to happen. And, and it was always this debate of who is the right older horse to match with Man of War. And when Sir Barton broke the track record for a mile and a quarter in early August of 1920, then it, everybody started honing in on him. Because they saw that man, that Man of War and Sir Barton were, you know, equal pretty much in terms of time over the same distance, and so they figured like these were the two natural, com- you know, competitors. They wanted Exterminator in there too, because Exterminator is just as famous at this point, and his reputation is really built up later as he gets older and he runs more and more. But at the time, like, these were the horses that people latched on to as the best competition for Man of War. And so the match race grew out of that. And then Samuel Riddle was finally convinced when the money started rolling in. So, like, first it was, you know, twenty-five or 30000 And he was intrigued, but he wasn't like, you know, eh, I'm... Maybe if they offer 50. So Ross and Riddle, like, you know, did a gentleman's agreement. You know, if they offer 50, we'll, we'll make, you know, some serious discussions about it. And then as, you know, 50,000 was bandied about, then 75,000. And Sam and Riddle couldn't say no to that because he wanted Man of War to break, I think, the $200,000 mark. And he knew that winning the match race at $75,000, winner take all, would put him over the top. So that was that was kind of the story of how all that came about. You know, there's more, and the book goes into it, there's more subtleties to it than that. And obviously, you know, if you read my book on Sir Barton and then you read Dorothy Ars's book on Man of War, you're going to get the two sides of how it really came about. So... Okay. It's fascinating talk- for sure. It's, it's a fascinating time because we don't do match races anymore. Right. And back then, that was like the yardstick for a lot of people was let's match these two horses up. Because, you know, I my book was published through University of Press of Kentucky. And next year, we have another book, another match race that's going to come out in the spring that's on Zev versus Papyrus. 
And if you thought the Man of War book, Man of War versus Herbarton was great, wait till you read Zev versus Papyrus because that is a match race of an American horse matched up with a British horse, and it is it is just wild. <laughs> so. Well, can't wait to read that. I want to talk about Samuel Riddle real quick. Uh, he was a key character in in Seabiscuit, the movie. Yes. Uh, was was that an accurate portrayal? of uh, Mr. Riddle, the, the way they portrayed him as kind of a stubborn guy that really, I think you've already kind of answered this already, but he, he was really reticent about uh, matching up uh, War Admiral against Seabiscuit. And I assume that was the same way with Man of War against C, uh, Sir Barton. It was, he was less reluctant to run against Sir Barton because of the, with Seabiscuit, it was the question of like, this is a, a West Coast horse. And Samuel Riddle grew up in like the Northeast, and he was they he was of the tradition that the West is Kentucky, and we don't run our horses in the West. <laughs> <laughs> so when you talk about California, that's like even more foreign territory. And if you're of that ilk of the Northeastern, where you run your horses in Saratoga and you go to Maryland, and that's you know, you New York and Maryland is as much as you do, and Kentucky is this eh, maybe. You know, he wasn't. The Sea Biscuit was a movie, and obviously they had to play up certain aspects of the story for the drama. So if you read the book, Laura Hillenbrand's book, she'll give you, you know, more depth to it. A lot of Riddle's um, personality was driven by that sort of, you know division in social class to some extent but also his wife was a big driver behind it and so you'll see like his wife kind of linger in the background and not really as noticeable but I think she you know had a lot of influence over his decision making about what he did with his horses so definitely if you if you if you think Riddle is portrayed in a certain way definitely read the books and get some insight into what else is going on behind the scenes because his antipathy to some extent toward like Kentucky racing kind of drives him in some of his decision making. Right. So it's it's funny when they call like Kentucky the West because I'm over here going like the West is like (laughs) Santa Anita, (laughs) you know, not Kentucky. So that's uh, why, you know, Man of War didn't run in the Derby, and it's not just that. There were other things going on at that particular moment. But, you know, he was not a fan of running his horses in the West, Kentucky, and running them that distance so early in in their three-year-old year. year. So that's one of the reasons why you see Man of War not run the Derby. But by 1937, 20 years later almost, and, you know, Gallant Fox and Omaha have won the Triple Crown in the interim. He kind of sees the value of venturing out that direction, and he, he gives in to it. So was there ever a chance that this uh, Sir Barton Man of War match race uh, could have been run at Churchill Downs? It was, well, the, it came down to uh, Abe Orpin from Kenilworth and Matt Wynn. And Matt Wynn... Colonel Matt Wynn, who was the promoter that really grew the Derby into what we know it as now, had been trying to get them to run it. And I don't know if it was Churchill or Latonio. It was probably Churchill, but 
I have to go back and look because it's been a it's been a little a little bit since I looked at it. I don't know if they ever really cited a track. It was more like we're gonna keep offering you money <laughs> until you yeah. say yes, and then we'll hammer out the specifics after that. So if Matt Wynn was involved, certainly Churchill Downs would have been part of the equation. But really, it was first getting them to agree to the money. And then once they agreed to the money, then they would hammer out the specifics. So, you know, it wasn't until after they signed a contract that they decided on the mile and a quarter. But Orpen came into it like, we're going to run this at Kenilworth, you know, because that's the track that I own. Whereas with Matt Wynn, I can't remember if he said Churchill or if he cited a different track. I'd have to look it up. I got you. So let's talk about Sir Barton. Uh, <laughs> I understand that... Uh, I did a little research on it last night, but Sir Barton ran in the Derby. He was entered as a rabbit. Now, a rabbit in horse racing uh, terminology is a horse that's going to go out to the lead and try to burn all the front runners out and set it up for a stable mate. And that was uh, Sir Barton's uh, plan. He was going to he was entered to run as a rabbit for his stable mate. And I think the horse's name was Eternally or Eternal. Who was it? It was Billy Kelly. Billy Kelly. Okay. Okay. So, but, uh, the, the plan was foiled as Sir Barton went to the lead and he never stopped and he went wire to wire and won that, won that race. Uh, is that right? Is that how, how, how the race set up? See, this is one of the, the great pleasures of what I do. Cause when I go and I, I talk about the book and what happens in like, I've done presentations at the national museum of racing and the Derby museum and places like that. I talk about the narrative that I grew up with of, you know, what you just talked about with Sir Martin as a rabbit. But as I started researching the story, I discovered that that assumption is wrong. Wow. Well, on the surface, it makes sense that you would bring both horses to the, uh, to the Derby because, um, I think what they, the thinking was, Sir Barton was coming in as a maiden, so he got a maiden allowance break in weights. So instead of running at 122, he was going to run at 110. Because of that, it made sense to bring him in because they know he can race, they know he has speed. If he runs and he burns himself out, then okay that's fine because of course they have their other horse billy kelly in the race but billy kelly prior to this had had his best success as a sprinter and so it was almost like we're going to have insurance that if billy kelly can't get the distance then we'll have this other horse that we think is capable but at the same time sir barton comes in with this maiden allowance and so they could not resist the advantage of that main allowance over that field of horses because they knew Sir Barton was capable. He had beaten Billy Kelly and their other uh, one of their other stable stars, uh, Cudgel, in a workout at Laurel uh, like two weeks before the race. So they knew he was fast. <laughs> they had seen him run in trials, you know, several times. So they were aware that he was fast and his pedigree would say that he could get the distance, but because he was still rather untested, they weren't hundred percent sure. But if you read the papers leading up to the race, 
you see reports coming in over and over that trainer H.G. Bedwell is actually quoted as thinking that Sir Barton was their better shot. Wow. At winning the Derby than Billy Kelly. I know. I was shocked. I was yeah. shocked. But it, the the more I dug into the research, the more it came up that, it, I mean, even like the president of Churchill Downs, when they asked him like more than a week out, like, who's your pick for the Derby? He said, well, Sir Barton, you know, to the point that the, the sports writer for the Louisville Courier Journal, uh, Sam McMeekin, picked Sir Barton. <laughs> Yeah. And then the next day published a column that said, I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like the best, the, that was like the best headline. Like the next day, here's you know, the Louisville Courier Journal and there's like the Derby is, you know, everywhere in the paper. <laughs> and then uh, like one side of the paper, there's this column that says, I told you so. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I was like, this, and I put that in my presentation. So. Because it's just way too much fun to show people, like, you know, a sports writer basically tailing everyone. <laughs> you should have listened to me. <laughs> Sounds a lot like Brandon when he picks a winner. He he lets us all know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, well, let's uh, just see yeah. about that. <laughs> but, uh, so, Sir Barton was well-bred, I think. Uh, he, he was a son of Starshoot, and he was a half-brother to a, a two-year-old champion named Sir Martin. Uh, and so, you know, I'm looking at his race record here. He, of course, he won the Triple Crown. He won the Withers. Uh, he, he was he won several races as a four-year-old. Do you think he was overshadowed somewhat? Probably didn't get his due at the time, or or or, or in in racing history in general, is it, is is Sir Barden maybe overlooked as a for you know maybe maybe ignored for the for the talent he possessed? Oh yeah, well, and that was. The, the thought that I, he has been, over time, diminished because of his proximity to Manowar is certainly one of the biggest motivating factors for me because I felt like, as a historian, as a writer, it was, it was time for someone to preserve his legacy because it, he was continuously, like, everyone, he's the first Triple Crown winner, but nobody really knows anything about him. And I was like, no, 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 we know plenty about him. You just have to, you know, dig because, so if you look at 1919, Man of War makes his debut in July at, uh, at Belmont Park, I believe. So in the first six months of 1919, the conversation was Billy Kelly and Eternal. And then after Sir Barton wins the Derby and then the Preakness, it becomes about him to the point where he's called the horse of the century. But then as you get into the summer of 1919 into the fall and Sir Barton continues winning and he continues demonstrating a level of excellence that he maintains throughout his career. But as Manowar starts winning and winning so spectacularly, everyone shifts their attention. It's sort of like if you think about Secretariat, you know, everyone knows Secretariat, and when you watch the movie, it's like, Secretariat saved Meadow Stable. Well, actually, it was Riga Ridge that saved Meadow Stable. Right. And it was an excellent racehorse by himself, but Riva Ridge gets often overlooked because of his proximity to a stable mate. And the same thing with Sham. Sham was an excellent racehorse and ran second, like, you know, Secretariat ran the fastest Kentucky Derby er ever, 
while Sham ran the second fastest Kentucky Derby ever, coming in second. <laughs> you know, it's that proximity to a celebrity makes it difficult for whatever you accomplished to really be appreciated in your context. So it takes time and then, you know, people drawing attention to the horse or to whatever before people really get to analyze what you were. So Sir Barton was an excellent racehorse. He was not Man o War. And he had the misfortune of coming along when Man o War came along. But he he was an excellent racehorse. He was a champion. He probably would have been horse of the year had we had that type of voting in that era in 1919 based on what he accomplished. So that was my biggest motivating factor was making sure that he got his just due after looking at his race record and seeing what all he did. And he, but you know, you have to look at also he, the way that his connections raced him was very inconsistent. And a lot of that had to do with his health. So he would run like a lot of starts really close together and then he would get a break and then he would run another cluster of starts close together and then he would get a break because he was so close to being unsound that they would literally race him into shape. And then the moment he started showing any sign of unsoundness, they would just back off. So you'll see like in 1920, he runs, I think, five races in two weeks. And then they lay off of him until the summer, until August in Saratoga. So I think that was another part of the issue is that, you know, if you're not in front of people's faces, they're not going to pay attention to you. So like Manowar comes along, everybody's looking at Manowar. <laughs> you know, Exterminator didn't get really famous until later because he was running concurrent with Manowar. And once Manowar retired, then Exterminator was able to rise to the level of fame that we know him at. But if you really look at his career, he didn't gain traction as much until after you know man of war had exited the stage so i hope that answers that question <laughs> oh absolutely yeah okay <laughs> uh alan or brandon you got any questions for uh, for jennifer <laughs> yeah i do i actually want to piggyback on something you just mentioned cc uh jennifer one of the things you learn if you, when you're in the horse racing at, at a young age is the thing everyone knows about sir barton is mm -hmm. obviously the first triple crown winner and the main thing you hear is who is the horse that won the Kentucky Derby as a maiden? And right. Sir Barton won the won the Derby as a maiden. Do you yeah. think that that maybe somehow diminished uh, his legacy a little bit in the fact that people think that that maybe oh. the average person thinks of his Derby win as, as kind of a fluke because of that whole maiden tag, even though it's not quite you know a legitimate uh, way to look at it. I think people, you, I think it takes a lot to realize the level of excellence you have to be at to win a derby it's not just he won the derby like broker's tip won the derby and then he never won a race after that that i think was a legitimate fluke even though he you know he might have done better had he been in different circumstances you know that's a different story for a different time i think people see the word maiden and they assume that this is a horse that lacked quality and right. so when he got into the Derby, that was just kind of like, yeah, whatever. I think that's why, you know, when he goes to the Preakness, there's so many horses that start in the Preakness because they were thinking the same thing. Well, this is just a one-off. But if you look at why he was a maiden, um, he started six times at the age of two. 
and his last start was in September in the Futurity, and then the, the stable moved out of New York down to Maryland, which is where they were based, and so they had this slate of two-year-old races they had planned on racing him in, but then in October, he gets injured when another horse kicks him, and then that, that cut becomes uh, septic, and he runs a fever, and he almost dies, and it was they were able to nurse him back to health, but it was very precarious, and so once he spikes this fever, and they're like, okay, well, we can't race him again in, in this year, then he doesn't have the opportunity to break his maiden because he doesn't get to run again. Right. And I, I think Bedwell later said that had he not gotten injured, they probably would have, he would have raced more in 1918. He would have broken his maiden. And I was surprised that they didn't race him earlier in 1919 before the Derby. But, you know, we don't need points to get into the Derby in 1919. That's true. <laughs> That's <laughs> you, right. <laughs> you just need to pay your starting fees and your entry fees and you get in. So that main allowance makes him too attractive to try to race again before the Derby. Because it's like, well, if I know I get a 12-pound break right. against a field of other three-year-olds, I'm going to take that 12-pound break. It's a and slow move. So, I mean, it was like, yeah, I can understand why people thought maybe he was just kind of like an okay horse who just happened to win the Derby. But I'm sorry, he won the Derby, the Freakness, the Belmont, and the Withers in 32 days. That's impressive. And our Triple Crown winners now win the Derby, the Freakness, and the Belmont in 35 days, and people think that that is, like, too much. Yeah. So, <laughs> I'm like, I understand why people think that way, but let me let me give you, like, the, the rundown. <laughs> Hopefully, no, uh, it answers, you know, people. Oh, yeah. Assuages their, like, concerns about whether or not it was a fluke. Yeah. Take me back to that era. During, you obviously did a lot of research. And of course, none of us were around back then. Yeah. But that era was post World War One. We had just come out of World War One. Uh, I think nineteen nineteen was the year of the Black Sox scandal. Yeah. Uh, so baseball was still huge. Yes. Uh, was nationwide was the romanticism, the the appeal with horse racing. Like I know it was in the thirties and forties and fifties, but did America get behind horse racing at that time? Or uh, like they would later on down the road, was was it a was it a national pastime at that point? From your research, it it has always it was probably the first sport of this country. So if you look at where the colonies started, I think the first documented sporting event in the United States from the colonies was a horse race. And I think the first racetrack was out on Long Island. And this is in, like, the 18th century. And then, like, when you think of the, the mayor, Salima, you know, her fame comes from winning, you know, races, you know, several heats and things like that. Um, what this era that we're talking about with Sir Barton is different than what we experience later because with the progressive era movements of things like prohibition, there was a lot of contraction of horse racing in the United States. <clears throat> so with Prohibition, there came this movement to eliminate vice from American culture. 
And so gambling fell under the umbrella of vice. So if you're going to get rid of alcohol, <laughs> yeah, you have to get rid of, of gambling because gambling can be evil and it leads people astray. So you get... I agree. The, <laughs> Yeah. Now it's like, okay, it's hard to, it's hard to uh, regulate certain, you know, activities that people want to undertake. So you try, you have to be more realistic about how you do it. But in this era, um, there's a lot of anti-gambling movements. And so what happens is the the sport shrinks. So it wasn't to what it was in the thirties and the forties in terms of coverage, but it was much larger than we find it in 1919 when Sir Barton is running. But since pro, you know, prohibition starts around this time, but the anti-gambling lobby has lost a lot of its power. And so you've got horse racing back in New York, and they're trying to build back to where they were before. Because there were probably like a half dozen racetracks around New York that closed for good in like 1910, 1911. Um, so New York is building back. Kentucky is... Kentucky and Maryland were the only states that maintained racing continuously through this era. And a lot of that's because of paramutual racing, paramutual wagering and stuff like that. So the sport has contracted, you know, a whole lot when Sir Barton comes along. But the places where it's still running, it's been running continuously for so long that you have fan bases built up. And then you have a stable of turf riders that are very invested in the sport. So you've got W.C. Vreeland at the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. This is about the time that, like, Damon Runyon is writing about baseball and then switches to horse racing. Grantland Rice comes along. I mean, there, there are people writing about horse racing, so they keep it in, in people's um, attention. And then as the war ends... Uh, people turn away from like the progressive movement and become more like where you want to be diverted from all of the stuff that we just endured. So horse racing becomes a part of the diversion from wartime concerns. You know, there's all this destruction, there's been all this death. You've had the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. Like people want to not think about that. So they turn to baseball in horse racing and, and the movies and other things to entertain themselves. So horse racing is definitely in people's minds. It just may not have the same coverage in terms of accessibility that you see later in the 30s and the 40s when the sport grows because they the states need the income from the wagering. And it sounds everything you said sounds vaguely familiar. Uh, these days, as a matter of fact, does it not? We just came full circle in a century's time. Um, one yeah, last question like, for me. There's so many parallels between our era and what's happening it really a is. century ago that, yeah. like, you know, the Depression really was a boon to horse racing because once states figured out that you can run horse racing at a minimal cost and collect a set and stable amount of revenue from it, then there's no reason to discourage it. And, you know, people were still more familiar with horses than they are now. <laughs> and so, and also the, the number of ways to divert yourself when you're you know in the 1930s is not the same as it is now so now we have nfl football well they didn't have football the way 
the same way in this era. So it's not as much of a diversion. Now, I'm an Alabama fan, so as far as I'm concerned, football's always been and <laughs> always will be, you know, part of my life. But in in 1919, I wouldn't have been able to watch a, a you know a football game on television. I could have gone to a football game, but that's not the same. But with horse racing, it's so much more accessible, I think. And so we're going to see. We're going to see it come around, this this cycle come around again in our time. It's just not going to look 100% the same. Gotcha. And you actually uh, stole my thunder to my next question because I know Sorry. you're near Huntsville. You're mm-hmm. near Huntsville. And I, anybody I meet from Alabama, I got to ask them this question. Alabama <laughs> or Auburn? And I assume being that near Tuscaloosa, you were going to be an uh, Alabama fan, so you're all you're all roll tide, right? Well, I'm. We're about two hours or so from Tuscaloosa up here. You get to drive through Birmingham to get to Tuscaloosa. So I've only been to like a handful of games, but basically in Alabama, as I'm sure it is in other places in the country, you just you know change the teams. But when you emerge from the womb and enter the world, you are told generally. Yes by your family members what you are (laughs) so when i i my earliest memories is just people talking about bear bryant so my family has always been very avid alabama fans um to the point where my late grandmother would would be like every christmas what do you want for christmas nana and she'd be like i need another alabama sweatshirt because i have worn out the one that you gave me last year You know, same thing with my dad. We gave my dad like a Nick Saban hat a couple of years ago. He was so happy. So I, I have I've reluctantly dragged my husband and children into this now because my husband's not from Alabama. So, but yeah, we're Alabama fans in this house. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 like that in other states, but it's, there's no state like it is with Alabama. Alabama. We've got Kentucky and Louisville here, and that pales in comparison to Alabama and Auburn. So I always ask people that question. It does, but, you know, when I go to Kentucky and people talk about Kentucky basketball, they seem to have the same reverence for Kentucky basketball that they have for... Oh, they do. Oh, they do. (laughs) So I'm still learning. Like, when I go to Kentucky, they're like, you know, do you know who Rupp was? No. (laughs) I have people explain it to me so I know what people are talking about. Like, hey, that's Rupp Arena. Oh, I get who that is now, you know. (laughs) That's awesome. Brandon, you got anything? You know, I, I remember like this past the COVID derby we had, they had that uh, virtual triple crown race. Oh, God, that was terrible. <laughs> I know, I know. So I figured I'd just mention that. Oh, why'd you bring that up? <laughs> it was minimally entertaining, but when Sir Barton finished last, I was like, that's not funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then other, also, I did order your book through Amazon tonight. Uh, it's going to be here on Friday, so I can't wait to read it over the holiday. I, I get a break from my day job, so that'll be fun. Oh, good. I, I'm Same excited here. to hear what you guys think about it because it's it was a labor of love for sure. And whenever people tell me now, like, I'm going to read, buy your book and read it, I get, I don't know how to respond because it's just super flattering <laughs> when people yeah. get excited about reading it. Yeah, I, I I had a lot of fun writing it, and I felt very lucky that not only I found a publisher, but you know my husband supported me so strongly throughout all this and encouraged me every day, even when I had days where I'm like, I got nothing done. <laughs> and he's like, you'll finish it, don't worry. 
So it's been it's been a labor of love, not just for me, but from my entire family to get Sir Barton, you know, out into the world and, and to you guys. So I hope you enjoy it. So after his stud career, which was kind of shortly lived, hmm. I mean, he it, it he went into a U.S. or if this is right, a U.S. Yeah. Army remount he, service. Do you talk about that in the book? I do. I don't get to spend as much time on it as I would like. So when you write a book. Um, my publisher, when I signed my contract, they said this: you need to deliver the manuscript at under 100,000 words. And 100,000 words sounds like a lot until you start realizing how much you have to do in 100,000 words. And it was like he ran 31 races over three years, including winning the Triple Crown. And I have to cover, you know, all the ancillary contextual things that are going on that influence the decision making you know why he why he goes here 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 like why is he in the belmont and not not here and so when i got to that last portion where it talks about the remount service like his stud career i wasn't able to spend as much time on it as i would have liked because it was just a matter of you know we had to make decisions about what was most important in terms of telling the story right. so he stood stud in Virginia from 1922 until 1932 at Oddley Farm. And if you drive out to Berryville, it's about 45 minutes outside of D.C., but Oddley Farm is still there. That's actually where Bodemeister was bred. Oh, really? So, yes. Oddley is the stallion barn and all the facilities that were there when Sir Barton stood stud in the 20s are all still there because I took a I went out there and stayed on property thanks to the the people who own uh, the Kobayashis who run the farm and and the people who own it. And they invited me out there um, to for a, a celebration and, and some other events. And so I got to see the stallion barn where he stood stud in 1932. And we don't have any documentation that gives us a true look into the thought process behind getting rid of him. But um, the gentleman who owned Oddly Farm, B.B. Jones, his brother had died five years previously. So B.B. was left to run the, the farm by himself, and he sells Sir Barton to the U.S. Army Remount Service, which supplied cavalry mounts to the military, you know, the mounted military of the United States. And if you read... Um, I think it's the perfect horse. We'll have to go back and find the title of it because it was a library book and I had to return it. But there's a book about the um, Arabians and other horses that were rescued in World War II and the Lipizzaners that were rescued in World War II. And they go into some of the history of the, the mounted cavalry in the United States. But the remount service was started after World War, around World War I to supply horses to the cavalry. And what they would do is they would take sires and they would ship them to different parts of the country. And then local breeders were able to bring their mares to be covered by that stallion for a minimal cost. And then the military had the option of purchasing the horse from that person. So if you had a quarter horse mare or a Morgan mare, you could breed to a thoroughbred stallion like Sir Barton and then the cavalry, if they wanted, could buy that horse from you. 
And then you could, that horse could be put into the system as a, you know, a mount for a specific, you know, person that was in the mounted cavalry. So there are records. They're not complete because some of them have been disposed over time. But there are records of horses that were sired by Sir Barton that were in the system. So other, like other histories have made this sound like it was some sort of demotion. <laughs> really what it was was like, Oddly Farm found themselves unable to market him as a viable stallion for thoroughbred breeders. So instead, they sent they sold him to the remount service so that they could use him as part of the military and to like get people excited about breeding <laughs> for the United States military. Like support your local military by, you know, you know, sending your horses here. So Sir Barton becomes kind of like a recruiting tool in a way. And he's not the only uh, stallion either. There's others like Behave Yourself. And I found out yesterday Granville, who was sired by Gallant Fox, also became a remount stallion. And so he spends the last five years of his life, Sir Barton, is out in Wyoming on the ranch of Dr. Uh, Joseph Foy Hilton who is an agent with Remount Service. And so he stands there and local people can bring their mares to be covered by him for a minimal cost, five or $10. And then, you know, there might be quarter horses and others running around the West with <laughs> Sir Barton and their pedigree. Of course, by now it's like 10 to 12 generations back. But there was even talk that there were some thoroughbreds running in California at one time that also had Sir Barton in their pedigree. But that's how he ended up in the remount service was just because he became as viable an option for thoroughbred breeding. So they sent him to this sort of second career. And I wish I could go into more depth because it's really interesting. Yeah, it's amazing. But it's, uh, yeah, I do the best I can to cover it in a short amount of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, no, you did a great job. I, I appreciate it. I just, it's something that a lot of horses don't ever do nowadays at all. And it's, it's more of if you win one of these, you know, graded stake races, mm -hmm. you're quick to the shed right? Know, to start breeding, well, even though the foal number counts have been falling over the last seven, eight right. years in Kentucky. So. It's, it's, well, it's, it's you know, the thing about breeding now is that, or at least in the thoroughbred industry now, is we have so many more options for what horses can do after they're retired from racing. So if you're a horse now, if you're a gelding and you're done with your racing career, you can go off being off track thoroughbred somewhere as like a mounted jumper or hunter or a pleasure riding horse or go live at old friends, just any number of options. Whereas this is the era where, you know, if you weren't racing, you were just done. They didn't, they didn't have options for what to do with horses once their careers were over. You know, we didn't have sanctuaries to send them to. So like old Rosebud, who won the Derby in 1914, literally raced until he broke down he broke down during a workout in 1922 when he was wow. 12 sold broke down during a workout and then was euthanized the same day so it's like they he had no other options like old rosebud with a gelding you know there was yeah. if he didn't race that was it <laughs> right. what else are they going to do with him 
Hey, so. Jennifer, why don't you, uh, can you tell us about the project you're working on right now with uh, uh, the, I think it's called the, uh, the Foxes of Bel Air? Yes, it's tentatively titled The Foxes of Bel Air, Gallant Fox, Omaha, and the Quest for the Triple Crown. And this is born out of, uh, when I was working on Sir Barton, part of writing a book proposal is you have to chronicle other titles that are in your genre. So when I was looking around at other books on other Triple Crown winners for as comparable titles, you know, American Pharaoh had just won the Triple Crown. So, I, you know, there were a couple of books on, on American Pharaoh. This was before Justify. So that book, you know, that story hadn't been written yet. Um, there are books on Secretariat. There's a book on Seattle Slough. There's one on Citation and, you know, just, but I kept noticing gaps where other Triple Crown winners had not yet had books written about them. And Count Fleet is one. Um, Assault had a Thoroughbred Legends book written about him, but not a longer, more thorough examination of his life and career. And the same was with Gallant Fox in Omaha. Like, there were books on... William Woodward, a book on Bel Air Stable, but there's not a book that just talks about Gallant Fox and Omaha. And since they're the second and third Triple Crown winners, and this is really where the history of the Triple Crown picks up because Sir Barton does it, but no one really calls it that for a few years. And it's not until Gallant Fox does it that it starts to catch on as a thing. And so I wanted foxes to be that same sort of discussion of Sir Barton for Gallant Fox in Omaha, where here's their careers, here's what they did on the racetrack, here's the context that they ran in, and here is how the, tri the Triple Crown makes this next phase of its life from being this thing that people you know, are paying attention to, but has it quite solidified in the minds of fans. And then as you get into Gallant Fox and then Omaha, it starts becoming a phenomenon that motivates people. Like, I mean, I don't think you would have had War Admiral running the Derby, honestly, had Gallant Fox and Omaha not come along prior to that and made winning the Triple Crown and running in the Derby in the amount of money they won so attractive to someone like Samuel Riddle. Because Gallant Fox ended his career as like the greatest money-winning horse in the United States. He had like $350,000 in winnings. He won $300,000 as a three-year-old. I mean, in 1930, that's massive. So the book is, the goal of the book is to tell the story of both horses and William Woodward, but only... <laughs> Only able to do it in enough depth to really explore how the Triple Crown makes its transition into this thing, you know. So that's that's where I'm at with that one. I, I'm still drafting it, so it's still really early, but I am definitely fond of these two horses. Well, very <laughs> interesting. Yeah, very interested in uh, reading the results of that. I can't wait for that uh, for mm -hmm. sure. Uh, Jennifer, let's wrap up here. Uh, we want to remind everybody the name of the book is Sir Barton and the Making of the Triple Crown. Uh, Jennifer, where, where, where can we find this book? You can find it at your favorite bookseller. 
So if you are partial to Amazon, you can order it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million. You can order it directly from my publisher if you'd like. Uh, the University Press of Kentucky is currently running their holiday sale, so you can get the book 20% off if you want. Uh, you can find it, I guess, if you can't find it in your bookstore, you can always ask them to order it for you if you don't want to order it online. I discovered that my Barnes & Noble near me carries a couple of copies, which is kind of nice. Um, <laughs> I was like, yes. And then if you want a signed copy, I have a, a bookseller that actually uh, does my signed copies for me, if anybody wants one of those. Great. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Jennifer, this has been just fantastic. Uh, I cannot wait to read this book. I think it's going to be a fun read and, and I always like, uh, like to read about the history of our, our sport. And uh, we want to definitely thank you for coming on and joining us to, uh, this evening. And uh, hopefully we can have you again when the, when the new uh, the, the, the Foxes of Bel Air is ready to go. We'll, we'll talk about that book for a little bit. Yeah, I'd love to be on with you guys again. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been fun. All right, that's Jennifer Kelly, everybody. And that wraps up our show. This is episode 31 of the Auxiliary Gate podcast. We'd like to thank Jennifer Kelly for joining us. And on behalf of Alan Schneider and Brandon Jaggers, this is CC Broadus reminding you that gambling money ain't got no home.